This programme was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the evening sky and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Normally we start our program with the, with the planet viewing coming up in this month, but uh, something special is happening this month, so we're going to start with that. In New Zealanders have a unique opportunity to observe a new meteor shower that is predicted for the 12th of December, according to astronomers at the Paris Observatory in France. Provisionally called the Lambda Scope Torrids, the new meteor shower will only be visible from the southern hemisphere and furthermore will likely only be visible between 9 p.m. and midnight above New Zealand and possibly eastern Australia and southeast Asia. According to Dr. Jeremy Vaubillon of Paris Observatory, the new meteor shower is caused by dust and debris ejected by comet 46P Wirtanen. Passing close to the planet Jupiter in 1974 and 1980, debris from the comet was pushed onto a collision course with Earth, with Dr. Vaubillon and his team having calculated that it should intercept Earth on 12th of December 2023 as a meteor shower. Dr. Vaubillon said, This is a really unusual event. We have modeled more than 50 years' worth of debris clouds from this comet, and December's event will be the first time a collision should be widely observable. But this meteor shower is also one-off, as we won't hit a debris cloud from this comet again any time soon. Since no meteor shower caused by Comet 46P Wirtanen has ever been seen before, we're not quite sure how many meteors people will see. Fireballs Aotearoa is already gearing up for the event. Professor James Scott of Fireballs Aotearoa and the University of Otago Department of Geology said that over the last two years, Fireballs Aotearoa and its many volunteers have built an amazing network of meteor cameras covering most of New Zealand. We see loads of bright fireballs that drop meteorites, but our cameras also record and classify a whole range of meteor showers. Professor Scott added, The meteor shower should be visible to the eye, but there's still time to get involved if people want to build or install their own fireball camera. Just search for the Fireballs Aotearoa website or go to www.fireballs.nz and have a quick read. That will respond to your email super fast to make sure you can be part of this. The president of the Royal Astronomical Society of New Zealand, Nalini Davies, is also looking forward to seeing what happens. She commented that the new meteor shower happens at the same time as the Geminids, one of the main annual meteor showers. The Geminids will be going faster and from a different direction, so I'm hoping that all of New Zealand gets a clear night and a good show from both meteor showers. The new meteor shower may also be visible from eastern Australia, but there is no equivalent of fireballs Aotearoa in Australia's eastern states. 
Professor Scott's comment on this was, this is a unique opportunity to do some great science here in New Zealand. Even if the meteors are visible in eastern Australia, they don't have an equivalent camera network to do the science. Add in the moonless sky and the lack of light pollution, and it couldn't be better for us. Dr. Vaubillon was looking forward to the scientific results. He commented that this helps tell us what comets are made of. The sizes of the meteors tell us about the distribution of particle sizes in Comet 46P Wirtanen. It's hard to sample comets directly, even with spacecraft, so we hope to learn a lot from the New Zealand meteor observations. So mark that on your calendar, 12th of December, 9 a.m., 9 p.m. till about midnight. Go outside and just have a look. Who knows what you might see. Jupiter is the evening star, appearing in the northeast not long after sunset. It is soon joined by the true stars Sirius, low in the east, twinkling colorfully, and Canopus, a bit higher in the southeast. Almost overhead is Achenar, another bright star, marking one end of Eridanus, the river. Midway down the western sky is Saturn, the same brightness as Achenar, but cream-colored. Jupiter and Saturn are good targets for any telescope. Maybe you'll get one in a few weeks. Binoculars show the disk of Jupiter and maybe one or two of its bright moons close to the planet. Any telescope will show all the Galilean moons, but not all four every night, as they cross in front of and behind Jupiter and are eclipsed in its shadow. A small telescope will show the disk of Saturn and the ring now becoming edge-on. The moon will be below Saturn on the 17th, and above it on the 18th, it will be near Jupiter on the 22nd. At the beginning of the month, Mercury will be a bright star-like object low in the southwest, roughly where the sun went down. Mercury ends its evening sky appearance in the first half of the month. At the beginning of the month, it is setting nearly two hours after the sun. It slowly falls lower, night to night. It also fades as it moves between us and the sun, and more of its sunlit side is turned away. By mid-month, it is setting an hour after the sun. The thin crescent moon will be above Mercury on the 14th. In the eastern sky, left of Sirius, Takarua, is the constellation of Orion. Bluish Rigel, Puanga, and orange Betelgeuse, Putara, are Orion's brightest stars. Between them is the line of three stars marking Orion's belt in the classical constellation. To European southern hemisphere sky watchers, they make the bottom of the pot. In Maori legend, they are Tau Toru, the carved sternpost of a mighty waka sailing the night sky. A faint line of stars above the bright three is the pot's handle, or Orion's sword. At its centre is the Orion Nebula, a glowing gas cloud, nicely seen in binoculars. Left of Orion is a triangular group making the upside-down face of Taurus the Bull. Orange Aldebaran, at one tip of the V-shape, is one eye of Taurus. The stars on and around the V, except for Aldebaran, are the Hyades Cluster. Aldebaran is actually not a member of the cluster, but closer, just on the same line of sight. Further to the left, or around to the north, is the Pleiades, or Matariki, Cluster. A tight grouping of six or more naked-eye stars, many more stars are seen in binoculars. Low in the south are the Pointers, Beta and Alpha Centauri, and Crux, the Southern Cross, upside down at this time of year. It is useful for navigation as it now points down to due south. The Milky Way is wrapped around the horizon. The broadest part is in Sagittarius, low in the southwest, around Mercury in early December. It narrows toward Crux in the south and becomes faint in the east below Orion. This is similar to the pre-dawn morning sky around the time of Matariki. The clouds of Magellan, the LMC and the MSMC, high in the southern sky, are two small 
galaxies about 160 and 200,000 light years away, respectively. They are easily seen by eye on a dark moonless night as misty patches of light. They're actually dwarf galaxies, much smaller than the Milky Way, gravitationally bound to us. Eventually, the gravity of the Milky Way will pull them apart, as is beginning to happen now, and those stars will be absorbed and become part of our galaxy. Very low in the north is the Andromeda Galaxy. In binoculars, in a dark sky, it looks like a spindle of light. It's actually a giant galaxy, bigger than the Milky Way, nearly three million light years away. It's the most distant object visible to the naked eye. Well, every now and then, a comet or asteroid comes to our solar system from interstellar space. Now, that's not the case with this comet that's been giving us, is going to give us this meteor shower, but it does happen. We have observed two interstellar objects in recent years, Oumuamua in 2017 and Borisov in 2019. One would assume then that in the past at least some interstellar objects have struck Earth, but we've never found an interstellar meteorite. A new study argues that this is because the Oort cloud is much more active than we thought. The Oort cloud is a halo of icy material on the outermost edge of the solar system, where the sun's gravity is barely strong enough to hold them in a stellar orbit. When another star passes somewhat near the sun, members of the Oort cloud can be nudged towards the inner solar system, where they can become long-period comets. We have never observed the Oort cloud, it's just too far away, but we know it's there because comets can approach the sun from every direction, not just the orbital plane of the planets. Astronomers can distinguish between Oort cloud objects and interstellar objects by their orbits. Interstellar objects have a hyperbolic orbit, meaning that if you trace their path purely under the gravitational influence of the sun, it would continue on to interstellar space, never to return. Oort cloud objects, on the other hand, have an orbital path that is closed. They may travel to the most distant region of space, but they are gravitationally bound to the sun. Of course, some interstellar objects could make a close approach to Jupiter or another planet, where the gravitational tug of that world shifts it into a bound orbit. So some interstellar objects could appear similar to Oort cloud objects. The opposite chance encounter, where an Oort cloud object is nudged into a hyperbolic orbit, was thought to be much more rare. Some meteors with hyperbolic paths have been observed. By combining multiple images of a meteor path, the path of entry into Earth's atmosphere can be calculated. In this study, the team looked at a meteor seen in Finland in 2022, which appeared to have a hyperbolic path. They found that based on the uncertainties of the observations, the meteor is statistically more likely to be a perturbed Oort cloud object rather than a true interstellar object. Applying the same statistics to six other hyperbolic meteors, they found four of them showed a similar statistical leaning towards being Oort objects. This would imply that most hyperbolic meteors are not interstellar. Interstellar objects have still likely struck the Earth, but more rarely than the initial data suggested. So our search for interstellar meteorites is going to be a challenge. But if we do keep going with organizations like Fireballs Aotearoa, the information they gather will be extremely helpful. Just going to take a break right now and uh, mention our uh, sponsors, the Holt Planetarium here in Napier. The planetarium is located on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. Uh, it's open every Sunday night to the general public from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. No bookings are required. Int uh, entry fees are $8 for students, $10 for seniors, $12 for adults, $30 for a family of up to six. 
shows, uh, the doors open at 7, the program begins about 7.15, lasts till roughly 8.30 or so. So if you're interested in learning more about astronomy, why not come down and visit us? We are open all through Christmas and New Year's, including Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So every Sunday, 7 p.m. If you'd like to learn more about us, give us a call, 8344-345. That's 8344-345. Or you can visit our website, holtplanetarium.org.nz. You're listening to Radio Hawks Bay, your community access radio station. This program is Starry Nights. On November the 1st, NASA's Lucy spacecraft flew by not just its first asteroid, but its first two. The first images returned by Lucy reveal that the small main belt asteroid Dinkinesh is actually a binary pair. Dinkinesh really did live up to its name. This is marvelous, said Hal Levison, referring to the meaning of Dinkinesh in the Amharic language, marvelous. Levison is principal investigator for Lucy from the Southwest Research Institute. When Lucy was originally selected for flight, we planned to fly by seven asteroids. With the Dinkinesh, two Trojan moons, and now this satellite, we've turned it up to 11. In the weeks prior to the spacecraft's encounter with Dinkinesh, the Lucy team had wondered if Dinkinesh might be a binary system, given how Lucy's instruments were seeing the asteroid's brightness changing with time. The first images from the encounter removed all doubt. Dinkinesh is a close binary. From a preliminary analysis of the first available images, the team estimates that the larger body is approximately 790 metres at its widest, while the smaller is about 220 metres in size. This encounter primarily served as an in-flight test of the spacecraft, specifically focusing on testing the system that allows Lucy to autonomously track an asteroid as it flies past at 16,000 kilometres per hour, referred to as the Terminal Tracking System. Fast forward to 7th of November of 2023 and it turns out there's more to the marvellous asteroid Dinkinesh and its newly discovered satellite than first meets the eye. As NASA's Lucy spacecraft continued to return data of its first asteroid encounter on November the 1st, the team was surprised to discover that Dinkinesh's unanticipated satellite is itself a contact binary. That is, it is made of two smaller objects touching each other. In the first downlinked images of Dinkinesh and its satellite, which were taken at closest approach, the two lobes of the contact binary appeared to lie one behind the other from Lucy's point of view. Only when the team downlinked additional images, captured in the minutes around the encounter, was the true nature of this object revealed. Contact binaries seem to be fairly common in the solar system, said John Spencer, Lucy, Lucy Deputy Project Scientist of the Southwest Research Institute. We haven't seen many up close, and we've never seen one orbiting another asteroid. We'd been puzzling over odd variations in Dinkinesh's brightness that we saw on approach, which gave us the hint that Dinkinesh might have a moon of some sort, but we never suspected anything so bizarre. Lucy's primary goal is to survey the never-before-visited Jupiter-Trojan asteroids. This first encounter with a small main-belt asteroid was only added to the mission in January of this year, primarily to serve as an in-flight test of the system that allows the spacecraft to continually track and image its asteroid targets as it flies past at high speed. The excellent performance of that system at Dinkinesh allowed the team to capture multiple perspectives on the system, which enabled the team to better understand the asteroid's shapes and make this unexpected discovery. 
It is puzzling, to say the least, said Hal Levison, principal researcher for Lucy, also from the Southwest Research Institute. I would have never expected a system that looks like this. In particular, I don't understand why the two components of the satellite have similar sizes. This is going to be fun for the scientific community to figure out. It's truly marvelous when nature surprises us with a new puzzle, said Tom Statler, Lucy Program Scientist from NASA headquarters. Great scientists, great science pushes us to ask questions that we never knew we needed to ask. Yeah, true enough. Mars might be called the red planet, but its atmosphere actually glows green. <coughs> Pardon me. Using the European Space Agency's ESA's ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, TGO, Scientists have observed Mars' atmosphere glowing green for the first time ever, in the visible light spectrum, that is. The effect is called air glow, or day glow, or night glow, depending on the hour, and it occurs on Earth, too. While it shares some similarities with the northern lights, or aurora here on our planet, it's actually a different phenomenon with different causes. Night glow, in particular, occurs when two oxygen atoms combine to form an oxygen molecule, according to ESA. On Mars, this happens at an altitude of approximately 50 kilometers. By comparison, auroras occur when charged particles from the sun collide with Earth's magnetic field. Scientists have suspected Mars to have air glow for some 40 years, but the first observation only occurred a decade ago by ESA's Mars Express Orbiter, which detected the phenomenon in the infrared spectrum. Then, in 2020, scientists observed the phenomenon in visible light using TGO, but in Martian daylight rather than at night. Now we've seen the phenomena at night via TGO. These new observations are unexpected and interesting for future journeys to the Red Planet, Yuliage planetologist Jean-Claude Girard said in an ESA statement. The intensity of the night glow in the polar regions is such that simple and relatively inexpensive instruments in Martian orbit could map and monitor atmospheric flows. A future ESA mission could carry a camera for global imaging. In addition, the emission is sufficiently intense to be observable during the polar night by future astronauts in orbit or from the Martian ground. Studying Mars' night glow, which will continue as part of the TGO mission, will also give scientists insight into processes that occur in the Martian atmosphere. Remote sensing of these emissions is an excellent tool for probing the composition and dynamics of Mars' upper, re- upper atmosphere between 40 and 80 kilometers, said Benoit Hubert, a researcher at the Laboratory for Planetary and Atmospheric Physics, LBAP, at the University of Liège. This region is inaccessible to direct methods of measuring composition using satellites. Studying Mars' atmosphere can also help with the design of future spacecraft destined for the red planet. A better understanding of, the dense, of its density can help mission planners build satellites that can withstand the drag the Martian atmosphere creates, for example, or design parachutes that can lower payloads down to the red planet's surface. Scientists have discovered that salt glaciers may exist on Mercury, the closest planet to the Sun, and the solar system's smallest world. The discovery could show that even the most volatile conditions in the, inner, in the inner solar system may occasionally echo conditions found on Earth. The team's findings complement recent discoveries that revealed Pluto has nitrogen glaciers. As Pluto exists on the far side of the solar system, the two discoveries imply that the glaciation extends from the hottest regions of the solar system, close to the Sun, out to its frigid outer limits. 
Even more exciting, scientists from the Planetary Science Institute, the PSI, believe that these salt glaciers might create the right conditions for life, similar to some of the extreme environments on Earth where microbial life flourishes. Specific salt compounds on Earth create habitable niches even in some of the harshest environments where they occur, such as the arid Atacama Desert in Chile. Research lead author and PSI scientist Alexis Rodriguez said in a statement, This line of thinking leads us to ponder the possibility of subsurface areas on Mercury that might be more hospitable than its harsh surface. Locations like those highlighted by the team are of pivotal importance because they identify volatile, rich exposures throughout the vastness of multiple planetary landscapes. They also suggest that the solar system could contain so-called depth-dependent Goldilocks zones, regions on planets and other bodies where life might be able to survive, not on the surface, but at specific depths that possess just the right conditions. This groundbreaking discovery of Mercurian Mercurian glaciers extends our comprehension of the environmental parameters that could sustain life, adding a vital dimension to our exploration of astrobiology, also relevant to the potential habitability of Mercury-like exoplanets. Rodriguez said, This research challenges the idea that Mercury is devoid of volatiles, chemical elements and compounds that can be readily vaporized and were vital to the emergence of life on Earth. It indicates volatiles may be buried below the surface of the tiny planet in volatile-rich layers, VRLs. The team has an idea of how these VRLs came to be exposed to the surface of Mercury, too. These Mercurian glaciers, distinct from Earth's, originate from deep-buried VRLs exposed by asteroid impacts, research co-author and Planetary Science Institute scientist Brian Travis said. Our models strongly affirm that salt flow likely produced these glaciers and that after their emplacement, they retained volatiles for over one billion years. The team thinks that the glaciers of Mercury are arranged in a complex configuration with hollows that form young sublimation pits, with sublimation being the process by which a solid is instantly transformed from a gas, skipping a liquid phase. Twister transformed into a gas, skipping a liquid phase. These hollows exhibit depths that account for a significant portion of the overall glacier thickness, indicating their bulk retention of a volatile-rich composition, PSI scientist and team member Deborah Dominguez said. These hollows are conspicuously absent from surrounding crater floors and walls. Dominguez added that this observation, by showing that asteroid impacts reveal VRLs, provides a coherent solution to a previously unexplained phenomenon, the seeming correlation between hollows and crater interiors. The team's research suggests that clusters of hollows within impact craters may originate from zones of VRL exposure caused by space rock impacts. As the impacts expose the volatiles, they sublimate into gases, leaving the hollows behind. Rodriguez and colleagues examined the Borealis chaos to determine the connection between Mercury's glaciers and its chaotic terrain and deduce what might be responsible for the formation of VRLs. This area is located in Mercury's north polar region and is marked by intricate disintegration patterns that seem significantly large enough to have wiped clear entire populations of craters, some dating as far back as around 4 billion years. Beneath this collapsed layer at the Boreal Chaos is an even more ancient cratered surface that has been previously identified through gravity studies. The juxtaposition of the fragmented upper crust 
now forming chaotic terrain, over this gravity-revealed ancient surface, suggests that the VRLs were emplaced atop an already solidified landscape, Rodriguez said. These findings challenge prevailing theories of VRL formation that traditionally centered on mantle differentiation processes, where minerals separate into different layers within the planet's interior. Instead, the evidence suggests a grand-scale structure, possibly stemming from the collapse of a fleeting, hot, primordial atmosphere early in Mercury's history. The PSI team thinks that this atmospheric collapse might have mainly occurred during the extended nighttime periods on Mercury when the planet's surface was not exposed to the sun's intense heat, leading temperatures to drop from around 430 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt lead, to minus 180 degrees Celsius. Salt-dominated VRLs on Mercury may have also grown extensively due to underwater depositions, an idea that also represents a significant departure from prior theories about the early geology of the closest planet to the Sun. In this scenario, water released through volcanic degassing may have temporarily created pools or shallow seas of liquid or supercritical water like a dense, highly salty steam, allowing salt deposits to settle. Team member and PSI researcher Jeffrey S. Cargill said, Subsequent rapid loss of water into space and trapping of water and hydrated minerals in the crust would have left behind a salt and clay mineral-dominated layer, which progressively built up into thick deposits. So even when you think something like Mercury is a really desolate planet with not much going on, sure enough, there's actually some interesting stuff going on everywhere in the solar system. Right, well, that's going to do it for our program this month. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. Remember, the planetarium is open every single Sunday evening to the general public. We're located on the grounds of Napier Boys High School on Chambers Street. Now, remember that this special month of December, we're going to have a meteor shower. It could be the most interesting meteor shower seen in this part of the, of the world in a long, long time. So 12th of December, between 9 p.m. and about midnight, do get out there and have a look. And thank you once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.